Happy Friday, and welcome to New Mexico in Focus, podcast edition for Friday, May 22nd, 2020. This is Kevin McDonald, the executive producer of New Mexico in Focus here on NMPBS. And we've got a great show for you again this week, going to mix things up a little bit in with the COVID-19 coverage. Got some other uh, topics we think you'll enjoy and are also just as timely, including a election segment coming up as the primary is just a couple of weeks away but we want to kick things off this week with the line panel this week we were joined by dan foley kathy mcgill and dd feldman great line pan up upon line panel as always and uh, they uh, kick it off by talking about sort of how the, the limited reopening of the state is going so far of course this week went into effect uh, more businesses able to open although at about 25 percent of capacity but also an equally as much a talking point around the community was the mandate of the masks the face masks in all public spaces so let's turn it over to gene grant and the line for that discussion We've had barely a week of a slow reopening as Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham tries to balance a pandemic with a recession. The governor announced at a news conference this week she's pegged June 18th for the start of a special legislative session to patch holes in the budget. She also hopes to let restaurants open to dine-in customers by June 1st. That's interesting. That, after health experts say the state's transmission rates continues to inch downward. I've got this week's line opinion panel here with me remotely, of course. Former state senator and line regular, Dee Dee Feldman is with us. Former house rep and line regular and favorite, Daniel Foley is with us from his living room. And Catherine McGill is back. She's the founder, director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. Thanks to all for being here. Uh, Catherine McGill, let me start with you. With you, It struck me looking at the coverage over the weekend uh, that while non-essential businesses could open, many chose not to. It, it, it's hard to get a feel for what exactly is going on out there, but from your observation, you being out and about this week, what were you sensing? Um, I think that, you know, people are still unclear about the guidelines, what their liabilities are, whether or not um, they can open with the restrictions that are still in place and, and have it be beneficial. So people are adopting a wait and see attitude in some cases to try to what is everybody else doing? How can I apply that to my business? And then when they open, they want to be able to remain open and not have to close again uh, because of some mistakes they made. So I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, people are, are, I think, rightfully so, being careful about how they reopen and hopefully being uh, carefully considering the health of the public as they, as they make those choices. Right. Didi, of course, the governor laid down the edict last week about mask use, and it's interesting to watch Facebook reporting, so to speak. (laughs) Folks out and about complaining about no masks being used, some elated seeing 100% mask use. Didi, what's your sense of it on the mask thing? And we'll get to some other parts of it, but what's your sense of that one? Well, um, I hope it's not a new partisan divide the masked versus the unmasked. It looks like maybe it's happening that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am not seeing a great deal of compliance uh, here in the North Valley out on the trails where I walk. Um, and um, 
and yet there are people also that are wearing masks. So, you know, it looks kind of 50-50 to me that, mm -hmm. um, of course, the problem is, you know, this is an, an edict, but there is no enforcement. It is, you know, it's kind of relying on peer pressure. It's relying on the honor system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's problems with the honor system uh, because, um, you know, there are people that just don't care about it. And um, so, I, you know, I don't know what to say. Of course, there is a suit now, I believe a lawsuit that is uh, challenging the authority of the governor mm -hmm. under the Public Health Emergency Act to enforce uh, to enforce a penalty for I think it's closures of of stores, not necessarily mask wearing, but mm -hmm. it, the same theory I think applies. Um, can the governor uh, actually enforce this? Can she rely on peer pressure? Um, you know, certainly that's the first step is using voluntary compliance. And, you know, there, there is, I mean, we should just consider even half of the people complying as being a victory in how many other laws are voluntarily complied with. Uh, so, yeah. I, I, I thought about that too. We should we should readjust what we consider success on this. That's for sure. Daniel, you know it's it's interesting when I think about churches. There was that's one of those side issues, but was very serious for church going folk. It, it, what's your sense of how that's going to work for church goers? Because honestly, across the country, Dan, there's been outbreaks in churches when folks get together without masks and without mm -hmm. distancing and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we have to have a conversation and, and you have to, <clears throat> we have to separate, which I think we have a hard time doing because we've politicized everything nowadays, of separating the conversation about, look, at what level does the government have the right to tell a church you're not allowed to meet, right? Okay. Um, yeah. At what level can they tell a church you can only do A, B, or C? Um, I think the governor made a great move by quickly fixing her edict and saying, you know, all oh, churches get 10% of the population and Walmart gets, you know, 25% of the population doesn't work. And I think that's the kind of stuff um, that frustrates people. I think in this scenario, I think churches felt have felt really frustrated that you're telling us at a church, and I'm saying us as I'm, I'm representing a church, I'm not, I'm just saying that you're right. telling churches, we can't meet but yet 900 people could go to Walmart during all this and bump into each other and shop and do this stuff. And I think there's just a lot of people who said, wait a minute, why is Walmart and your ability to go to Walmart or wander around Home Depot more important than my ability to go once a week to church? Mm -hmm. And I think the governor, you know, to her, to her credit has moved and said, listen, we're going to, we're going to get churches on the same trajectory as the big box stores and letting them do the things they need to do. Because listen, you know, we used to say, uh, you know, if you remember the great quote from, uh, from any given Sunday, the box holes, right? People are not very religious until pandemics show up. And then all of a sudden there's a lot more people that suddenly want to get a little God in their life. And yeah. so, you know, you start, you start wanting to get a little more God in your life and someone starts telling you, you can't get more God in your life. You suddenly realize how much more you want God in your life. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think, I think the governor's doing a better job now of saying, listen, we're going to embrace this holistic approach and, and understanding this. You know, I, I think the other thing we have to remember too, in New Mexico, you know, we're not Los Angeles, California. We're not New York, Chicago. Overwhelming numbers of churches outside of Catholic churches, but I would probably say even with Catholic churches, there are 50, 60, 100 people in this state. 
right? I mean, our our state is full of small town churches. They're not all yep. mega churches like Calvary and and the Basilica. They're 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 small churches, and um, I think at some point, you know, they felt a little like they should be able to manage themselves. But the governor's coming around. I think churches are feeling better about it. I think they're feeling happier about it. I think they're feeling more engaged in the process, and uh, I think it's going to work better for everybody. Yeah. Kathy McGill, one thing, I, I, when I put myself in the governor's position here, there's an interesting and problematic collision course that we're on here when you think about it, Kathy. Um, we don't know what's going to happen from this so-called soft opening we've just had this week, meaning more COVID cases for about two weeks. And that's going to be right after the fact, right after the point we open restaurants for dine-in service. What happens if we have a downturn and the numbers don't look so good? Does the governor have any political wiggle room? to then reshut things down at that point once things open? I think that's why um, you know, people are taking a, um, a slow approach to reopening because we don't wanna to have to, to shut down again and the voluntary compliance with the public health orders are gonna help that. Uh, as you know, what Dan was talking about related to churches, uh, what I've seen out there is that that a lot of churches are saying, you know, we we agree with what the governor has said to do, but you know, all of this comes down to money and to trying to make sure that we can um, be sustained after the pandemic is over. But none of us know when it's over. So, mm -hmm. does the governor have wiggle room to uh, put in place more restrictions if something happens? Absolutely, mm -hmm. um, and we want to we want to avoid that. So. It's the onus is on the citizenry to say voluntary compliance, even if you don't agree that a mask is something that's appropriate for you to do, just yeah. do it. Uh, what's it going to hurt? You know, I think you know, I think we also have to I think we have to be honest. And I'm not saying you I'm just in general. You know, when you say, hey, if she releases these restrictions, we may have an uptick. We're going to have an uptick. It's a virus. I mean, you know, we, we've got to understand whether we agree with it or like it or don't like it. You know, you've heard, I mean, I, you know, I, I never understood the whole herd theory and the herd mentality. And, you know, now that you're hearing all the stuff about, you know, the best way to get the herd through a, a, a disease is you have to indoctrinate, you have to introduce the entire herd to it, not, you know, pull one cow out at a time and let them get sick because they don't, they don't respond to it. And that's kind of what the theory is behind the herd theory. But listen, we've, we've done a good job of shutting things down, right? Schools stopped operating, businesses stopped operating. I don't know about you guys, but you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't down in Hobbs and Roswell, but you know, you go to downtown Albuquerque when this first started, it was a ghost town. I mean, yeah. it's we we've done a lot of things, um, and the economy tells you that people have been staying home. When we now say, "Hey, start to go out," so the reason I'm, I'm jumping in and saying this, Gene, is when we say, "What can the governor do if there is an uptick?" There's going to be an uptick. It's going to happen. More people are going to get sick because more people are going to get exposed to this. I think that you got to listen to the doctors and say some, you know, somewhere out there saying that's the only way to cure this. Others are saying it's not. But I think as the media and as those of us that are out here talking, when we present this narrative that says, oh, no, if the governor loosens restrictions, we might have an uptick. Oh, no, you're going to have an uptick. We not. It's not we might. We will. And I yeah. think that you're going to have to be very careful and balance. Do we overreact or do we act correctly? Well, well I think it's a numbers go game. It's a numbers seconds, game. Didi, go ahead. Mm -hmm. It's a numbers game, and I think uh, I think the administration and um, 
Dr. Scrace is, are playing the numbers game. Uh, they're doing it, uh, managing how big of a, of a resurgence would there be? Uh, and they're going slow, taking very measured steps so that if they do have a, or if we do have a, uh, a new outbreak, and remember there's some studies that say that um, just wearing masks reduces the, uh, the incidence of this disease 20%. That's right. um, and so just wearing masks could save like the lives of 1800 people. Who knows whether that's true or not? Mm -hmm. uh, there are various models, and I think that Scrace and uh, Kunkel and uh, Michelle uh, are, are well-equipped, and they are looking at them all, and the, and the steps that they are taking kind of reflect that. I, right. I do trust that that's the case. I know uh, Dr. Scrace, he is a data-driven guy, but he's also reality-based yeah. because, um, you know, you can't, you can't shut down the government indefinitely. It's impossible. Right on. Um, I appreciate you getting in those thoughts. No doubt about that. We're going to have to leave that there. The multi-talented Laura Pascas is back with us this week. Of course, she's always working on environmental stories. We'll have a lot more of that coming up in future weeks. This week, she continues to check up with journalists across the state to find out COVID-19 and how it's affecting communities that they serve and cover. And this week, we go just across the border into El Paso, which is really the center of a lot of things in terms of COVID-19. Texas has been a little further down the road in terms of reopening than New Mexico, and so people are keeping a close eye on what happens with the number of diagnosed cases and testing there in Las Cruces, just about 30, 45 minutes away from El Paso. She's joined this week by a couple of journalists from the El Paso area. Another key point you'll hear Bob Moore from El Paso Matters talk about is the Immigrant Detention Center, which is just outside of El Paso and how they're dealing with the COVID-19 outbreak. Here now is Laura Pascas. Bob, you've reported relentlessly on the detention of men, women, and children along the U.S.-Mexico border. What do we know about what's happening with the spread of the virus and treatment of people who might have the virus within these crowded detention facilities? Well, the, the, certainly the biggest explosion in this region is at the Otero County Processing Center down in, in Chaparral. Uh, where the most recent count uh, is, uh, I think, 58 detainees at the ICE facility. Now, of course, that's a multi-purpose facility. So you also have another 30-some inmates who are detained by the U.S. Marshal Service there that have also tested positive, plus 21 uh, New Mexico Corrections Department detainees. So you have more than 100 uh, cases uh, uh, being reported there. The bulk of them are in the ICE facility, though, where um, you have these uh, 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 asylum seekers and, and, and other uh, immigrants who've been detained. Uh, uh, we're, we're hearing the place holds about a thousand or can hold a thousand people. We've been consistently hearing that the numbers have been staying up around 700. By contrast, uh, the El Paso Processing Center, which is an ICE run facility rather than a private run facility that's, that's here in El Paso, also has a capacity of about a thousand, but they've decreased their population to about 300. And as a result, they've only had 12 cases of, of, of COVID-19. Uh, so there, there's a definite disparity there 
uh, with, with the facility in, in New Mexico. And we're also starting to see uh, some other cases popping up at, at Torrance uh, and at Cibola in, in New Mexico, but nowhere near the numbers we're seeing uh, at the Otero County Processing Center. Do you have a sense of what conditions are like inside these facilities? Are they able to be isolating people or treating people? So from what we're hearing from attorneys of people who are detained there, if you test positive, you're basically put in solitary confinement. Uh, uh, and that raises some other issues too, that the ICE will refer to it as medical isolation. Uh, but you know, putting uh, a person into solitary confinement for a 14 day period runs right up against the, the 15 day mark that the UN uh, uh, declares as a form of torture when you place somebody in, in solitary confinement. So they're, they're isolating uh, detainees who test positive by themselves in these, these solitary cells. Although that may not be possible as these case numbers continue to grow, they may have to, I'm sure they are adapting. Otherwise, if you've been exposed to a fellow detainee who, who tests positive and you haven't been tested yet, they'll, they'll uh, put you in what they call a cohort. Uh, and so they put, a, a, this is a basically a dormitory style setting uh, where you have a series of bunk beds that are, that are still fairly closely packed together. Um, and that's one of the reasons you've seen uh, the widespread um, uh, eruption of these, these uh, outbreaks, not just in the El Paso and New Mexico area, but all across the country. Uh, these are very difficult places to establish social distancing in. Uh, just something as simple as making a phone call to your lawyer, you're using a phone that somebody else had used minutes earlier. And until recently, they hadn't been doing a very good job of, of sterilizing those phones and things like that. So these, these are conditions uh, like any other detention facility that are just ripe for the spread uh, of any infectious disease. Right. Lauren, you've been asking a really important question. Customs and Border Patrol agents interact with hundreds of people on a daily basis and are not required to be wearing PPE. What have you learned in the last week or so about that? Well, you know, I initially approached that story wondering if um, if the federal agencies at the border had the right access to personal protective equipment. And it turns out they do. Their union representative says they do. They have access to everything, um, even some of the equipment that, you know, that nurses have been clamoring for. Um, but without a doubt, they're not using it regularly. I've been crossing the border for stories on a fairly regular basis over the past three or four weeks. And uh, while you'll sometimes see uh, CBP officers at the customs houses and at the kiosks um, for passenger vehicles wearing an N95 mask, uh, a lot of times you won't see them wearing it at all. And you know, it, it's not entirely clear why. I think that there's some discomfort involved. One of the officers told me he had an N95 mask strapped to his uh, belt not on his face. And I said, you know, why aren't you wearing it? And he said, you know, well, we have to get, we have to get, you know, down on the ground and look under cars and it's hot. And, you know, I think he was sort of uncomfortable. Um, at the same time for the traveling public, I think it's really worrisome. Um, I was placed into a secondary inspection on a couple of occasions. There's a lot less traffic and for a variety of reasons, they like to check vehicles a second time. And that requires pulling through, um, pulling through, turning off your car and having officers um, really sort of pro, you know, probe and, and search the vehicle. I have a five-year-old daughter, she was in the back and the officers who were at my window and checking my car weren't wearing face masks. 
Um, it is a recommendation by the agency. It is not mandatory. Um, so there's not really anyone enforcing that. Right. Lauren, you also reported recently about how border towns in Mexico are being affected. People are losing their jobs, but in addition to that, the Mexican peso has crashed and food prices have spiked. How are people surviving right now? Um, you know, it's, it's really pins and needles in Juarez right now. Um, the city's 300,000 maquila workers are the workers who work in the assembly plants that in our region largely feed the automotive industry in the U.S. are really caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, many want to go back to work. Many who were sent home do want to go back to work because they're only being paid a fraction of their salary. In some cases, just 40% that might amount to 30 or $40 per week, which in a border city is absolutely not enough to live on, especially with a family. Um, at the same time, the Maquilas have been centers of these outbreaks. Uh, Lear Corp, which um, makes automotive parts for US auto manufacturers, has been probably the most transparent of the big corporations that have assembly plants in Juarez. And they haven't given an exact number of Maquila workers who have died um, the city has said it's 17, but that update came from several weeks ago. Um, but they did see a big outbreak at one of their plants and several workers have died. So, uh, you know, the corporations are trying to get sanitary uh, measures in place, new protocol, perhaps new design for the way production is laid out. Um, and many are starting to go back to work this week, uh, next week, and then starting June 1st. Uh, but it's a huge risk. Some of these plants have thousands of workers in a single facility. So Bob, Texas is moving ahead far more aggressively than our state is in terms of reopening. How do you see that affecting, potentially affecting New Mexico? Uh, first of all, it's important to note that uh, El Paso was given an exception this week, uh, as was Amarillo, which is, is another area where a lot of New Mexicans might might go through, uh, because the governor did exempt some areas that are that are still seeing ongoing problems. Uh, so we'll see uh, next week. But you know, as of um, uh, uh, this Friday, uh, Las Cruces and El Paso will generally be pretty similar as far as uh, uh, openness goes. Uh, that could change again next week as El Paso expands more. Um, but there's there's still some 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 real concerns when you look at the the data for for Doniana County. Uh, the highest infection rates are tend to be in the areas closest to El Paso um, because places like Santa Teresa and Sunland Park really have a lot more in common uh, with El Paso than they do with say Las Cruces, and so. People work here. They 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 tend to business here. So uh, that is one of the challenges of this region that we live in. You know, Lauren talked about what's going on in, in Maquiladoras. So we're really in a in a tri-state, um, multinational region here, and that illustrates the difficulties of adopting policies to control the the, the spread of of this disease. So Michelle Lujan Grisham can set some edicts in Santa Fe for how Sunland Park and Santa Teresa are going to work. But if Greg Abbott in Austin sets looser restrictions, um, uh, it really will undermine whatever edicts uh, she, she puts out. So we, you know, we're, we're, we are still seeing increases in cases uh, here in El Paso, some really frightening hospitalization numbers. I suspect that's more related to what happened here on Mother's Day when we had a pretty big breakdown uh, uh, in social distancing compliance. Uh, 
so it's a little too early to, to say that the reopening of the economy is related to any of these cases, but it's something that bears watching. Right. Well, thank you both so much. I appreciate your incredible reporting, and I'm really glad we were able to get you on the show this week. Stay safe, and thank you so much. You be safe, too. Thank, thank you. you, Laura. Bye. As we've talked and talked and talked about in recent weeks, of course, the COVID-19 outbreak is a public health uh, issue unlike any that anyone has faced, really. And uh, at the front lines of that, you hear a lot of talk about healthcare workers, the first responders. You hear about grocery store workers. You hear about other um, essential workers that are literally putting their lives on, on the line every day to go out and do their job. And, and some employees that you don't always hear about are laboratory workers who are key in the fight and figuring out how far COVID-19 is spread, and that's by running the tests, uh, thousands of them a day. And the biggest private laboratory in the state is Tricor Research Labs. Senior producer Matt Grubbs caught up with one of the administrators from Tricor here in Albuquerque to talk about how testing is going right now, a little bit more about the different kinds of testing. As you'll hear Matt Grubbs ask him, there's the test that says, I've got it or I don't have it, but there's also a test that is the antibody test you've probably heard people talk about, which ideally can tell you if you had it sometime in the past and thereby may have some immunity towards it now. Uh, they're also going to talk about how he sees the testing continuing as we start to reopen as a state. Here now, Matt Grubbs. Dr. David Grenache, thank you for making some time with us. Um, how does Tricor fit into the testing system that New Mexico as a state has in place? Uh, well, Tricor is a, a, is a regional reference lab, a clinical laboratory that performs laboratory tests uh, on patients all across New Mexico. Uh, we have our main operation here in Albuquerque, but we also operate uh, uh, clinical laboratories in hospitals around the state. Okay. Um, as we um, moved through this process, Tricor has ramped up uh, its ability to test significantly. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that, including um, adding uh, platforms for testing? Sure. Uh, so we started testing uh, for the COVID uh, virus, the, the nasal swab test that you see so much about um, in early March. Uh, and it was obvious, we knew it from the beginning, that we wouldn't have enough capacity uh, to, to meet the demand for testing with our current um, uh, machines that we have. Uh, so we quickly uh, ramped up capacity in order to meet up with demand. And now we're able to perform about 3,000 tests a day. Okay. Uh, as we return to work, how important is testing to New Mexico and to weathering the pandemic? Uh, testing is, is always going to be important uh, throughout the pandemic um, uh, until which point we get to a better understanding of the, the, uh, the, what we call the prevalence of infection, how many people have uh, either are currently infected or who have had the infection and have recovered. Um, and we're hoping that recovery uh, means that you would be, have some immunity to reinfection. 
Uh, but moving forward, testing will be important uh, to identify individuals who uh, are infected but are asymptomatic and should uh, stay at home in quarantine until they are no longer shedding the virus. Okay. Before we started, I was looking at some of the numbers, the testing numbers that Tricor has, has shared with people. It looks like you've done probably by this point more than 70,000 tests um, in evaluating them. About a month ago, it looks like maybe the positive rate was somewhere between five and 6%. As you've really ramped up your capacity in these past two or three weeks, it appears that that's gone down to somewhere around 3%. What can you tell me about those numbers? Is that significant at all? Yeah, I, I currently our our positivity rate uh, for you know, meaning the number of, of positive samples against the uh, total number of samples tested is around four percent, um, and I I think throughout the pandemic here in New Mexico um, we've seen fluctuations uh, around that four percent average. But keep in mind that New Me that Tricor isn't the only laboratory that's doing testing, uh, so it's uh, we do we do most of the testing in New Mexico, but the state health lab also is doing a fair number of tests as well. Uh, but all of the, all the test data are aggregated and put on the Department of Health website every day. Sure. I, we have, a, I think, a tendency to want to infer things um, from the numbers that we see to better understand them or feel like we have some sort of a, a grip on what's going on. Is it fair to infer anything from these numbers? Well, I still think it's maybe a little bit too early to uh, infer a lot. We can there's there's lots of modeling um, and predictions that that uh, are taking place, um, but the further you get out in time in a predictive model, the the more uncertain the model becomes. I don't think you can read a. I think what you can read into the positivity rate today uh, is that it hasn't been rapidly increasing in New Mexico, and that's a good thing. It's an indication that the disease just isn't spreading um, faster, I guess. That that, and I think that the the the, the restrictive measures that um, uh, the governor put in place to help slow and uh, the spread of the disease were were very effective. Okay, so there are two types of tests. Um, there's the do I have it and the have I had it test. Right. Um, uh, you mentioned the first one with the nasal swabs, the, the do I have it test. Um, the second one, I, that's called serology. Is that right? Correct. Okay. What That detects antibodies. And right now, as you mentioned, we'd love to know whether or not having antibodies gives you some sort of immunity. Um, without knowing that, how do we peg the usefulness of the serology test? That's a really important question. Um, I think we can look at the usefulness of a serology test, which is, and, and just to be clear, um, a serology test for the novel coronavirus is detecting antibodies that our immune systems make against the, the, the virus. Right? And antibodies are proteins that um, in many cases will confer immunity. Sometimes that immunity is lifelong. You know, you can think of uh, a measles vaccine, for example, right? It makes us immune to measles for really the rest of our lives. Other times that immunity is short-term and you think about getting a seasonal flu shot. It makes you immune for a short period of time, but then that goes away. And right now we don't know uh, for certain whether or not in antibodies that we make against the novel coronavirus will confer 
short or long-term immunity, or if they'll confer any immunity at all. So when we look at sero this type of serological testing, I think we can put it, I, I put it into one of two buckets. The first bucket is testing an individual uh, to see if they've had the infection in the past. And right now, uh, that's really all a positive test will tell you, is that you were infected in the past. But it doesn't really inform, doesn't provide any more any really valuable or actionable information. And the other bucket of testing would be from the public health perspective. Antibody testing can be useful um, in what we would call a seroprevalence study, right? If we could test a certain number of the population, a certain number of people, and identify who has antibodies and who doesn't, that would give us a good idea of, uh, of the um, the infection rate, right? How, how widely spread the infection was, particularly among individuals who were sick and didn't seek care and didn't have a, a viral nasal swab test, or people who were infected but never had symptoms or had very mild symptoms. And so doing that type of widespread antibody testing would inform us about uh, how widespread the infection was. Okay. And with that information, um, as you said, you can sort of measure where it is in the population. Is that also useful if, say, a month, two months, three months down the road, we discover that there is some sort of immunity that's passed along that, that the presence of those antibodies would indicate? Right. So it, once we establish, once we know if the antibody response that we, our immune systems make, if, if, if we know that that confers immunity, then the value of antibody testing to the individual goes up dramatically because then we can identify people who have not only had the infection in the past, but who would be immune. Uh, and that's what everyone is hoping for, that this immune response uh, that our immune systems make will protect us, at least in the short term, from reinfection. As they work on the vaccine and that sort of thing. Right. And that's the other, I guess that's really a third bucket of uh, usefulness of, the, of this antibody test would be in vaccine trials to identify people who have been vaccinated. You have to figure out if they have generated an immune response to the vaccine, and that could be done by antibody testing. Okay. And if they do come up with a vaccine theoretically, and they also discover that the presence of antibodies confers some sort of immunity, you could make better use of your vaccine? If and when a vaccine gets, gets made, uh, where there, there will be another, a whole host of new challenges, and that would be uh, distribution and, and administration of the vaccine. And there won't be limitless doses of a vaccine uh, to be provided. So you would want to use it judiciously, or if, you, or if you needed to use vaccines judiciously, then you could utilize antibody testing to identify people who don't need to have a vaccine. Okay, we just have about a minute left here. As we um, go forward and as, as Tricor goes forward, I know you've um, expanded to regional hospitals and, and some of the, the testing capabilities that you have. Do you have enough things like, like swabs, like reagents? Maybe the reagents are more important for the lab setting, but what does that supply chain look like? All right, so right now um, we are able to meet the demands of testing with the reagents, with the, 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 the test chemicals that we use to perform the test. But a limiting factor continues to be um, nasal swabs. Uh, so we, if we, if that, if that is the critical piece in the supply chain. Uh, without nasal swabs, we can't do the appropriate collections to do the viral testing. 
Um, and that's why more attention is being given to alternate types of samples. You know, can we sample just from the inside of someone's nose? Can we sample, can we test saliva? Uh, are the, will these be appropriate samples to uh, detect the virus as accurately as we need it to be detected? So as we all return to work, it sounds like uh, you are still trying to sort of, you being Tricor, is still trying to figure out the best way to measure this disease, to detect it, and to provide that information to public health authorities. Right. We want to be able to uh, detect the virus in people uh, uh, using these alternate sample types if it's possible, but we, don't, we can't compromise on the accuracy. Dr. Kranash, thanks for your work and for your time. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right, I mentioned it earlier, but we're going to shift gears now a little bit on the show away from COVID-19 coverage. In just a couple weeks, June 2nd is primary election day here in New Mexico. I want to point out that our line panel did a web extra on Thursday that we encourage you to go check out on Facebook or on YouTube where they talked about the absentee ballot process. Again, you'll remember that there was a motion to allow the June primary to be an all-mail-in ballot or all-mail-in election so that folks didn't have to go to the poll, put themselves at risk and poll workers at risk of uh, contracting COVID-19. The New Mexico Supreme Court said that was not appropriate, but they did allow for the Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, and her office to mail out absentee ballots to all eligible voters in New Mexico. So they talk a little bit about how that's going, if that's working, what implications that might have for different political parties, different races, different candidates. But right now, we're going to get there handicapping a bit on a few races. This week is the federal races. Next week, we will tackle the uh, statewide legislative races, of which all of them are up for election this year. But right now, we're talking about our three congressional seats and, of course, our one Senate seat currently held by Tom Udall that uh, will come open here in November. Here now, back to Gene Grant and the line. Guess what? It's an election year and a big one, not just presidentially, but here in New Mexico, certainly. We want to start with our federal races ahead of the June 2nd primary. There's an open Senate seat, of course, as Tom Udall retires, an open congressional seat in the North as Ben Ray Lujan runs for the Senate, and a tooth and nail battle for the Republican primary in Southern New Mexico. Dale, let me start with you. Uh, with the Senate, Ben Ray's the man to beat, certainly, as Democrats have essentially cleared the field, as we know. But Republicans have drawn some attention. Elisa Martinez won the primary, as you know. Mark Ronchetti has led the money race, which is interesting. But is there a key dynamic here that's going to turn the key for Republicans? What, what's what's missing out there? Well, I think, you know, there's multiple things missing right now, right? I mean, I'm not sure how excited the state of New Mexico is for the for the federal race for President Trump and uh, the Joe Biden race. That's going to have a huge impact mm -hmm. uh, on the Senate race. Um, I think there's going to be a huge impact. Look, I, I don't think there's a, you know, the Democrats have done a phenomenal job of clearing the path for uh, ben Ray to run for the U.S. Senate. I, I'm not sure what Republicans have done. I mean, we're, you know, I mean, if there's any example of this Republican Party being rudderless and leaderless, it's right now, right? I mean, there's no, you know, we've got this battle going on for the Senate seat of which anybody would tell you uh, when you look at the number of votes that are out there and the opportunities we have, probably not going to be a great year for Republicans on a statewide ticket in New Mexico, but yet we're burning a ton of 
capacity on this on, on that race. Mm-hmm. Now, I will tell you, you know, if, if it's a chance to win, it's going to have to win it with an open seat. We've New Mexico has been very rare to unseat a sitting right. senator. So, you know, with Ben Ray's age, you have to make sure you put up a, a fight. I'm not sure that any of the people in that fight are the right people. They're the mm-hmm. ones that chose it. Um, you know, but I mean, Mark Ronchetti, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, other people have sent sports announcers and weathermen to, to Congress. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, he definitely is going to have name recognition. Um, yeah. But yeah, let you know, me, let me do this. Let me bring Didi in, in here real quick on, on your point there. Uh, ben Ray's, uh, like I mentioned, Didi, Ben Ray's out there. He's got a ton of money. If it's a money raise, can Republicans even raise enough money to have a competitive go at that? I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I really don't think so. Plus he's got the name recognition that the Republican candidates do not have. They're newcomers. Right. And uh, even though, you know, this is an open seat, he is an, Ben Ray is a known commodity to New Mexicans. And so that, uh, that kind of makes him the de facto incumbent in some ways. And uh, that's a tremendous advantage uh, at in a time of coronavirus, as we've seen, incumbents and those with the, with the most money have a really big advantage because mm-hmm. they can communicate in the only way that's open to them, mm-hmm. and that's through the airwaves and uh, digitally. Yeah, uh, Kathy, an interesting situations forming in CD two, <laughs> certainly down south, where. Uh, so Chill Torres Small is is being chased by Chase, sorry, by Claire Chase and Yvette Harrell in the Republican primary. <laughs> They're making the most noise. But there's an interesting thing about Trump loyalty going on in that district and who's more loyal to Trump. Statewide, do you think that would work? Let's say if a Republican punched through Mark Ronchetti just to pick somebody, would he actually have the ability to say, I'm just a Trump guy all the way down the line and win a statewide race? Would that work? So first of all, Gene, I have to ask you, why did you ask me this question? <laughs> why? Right. Uh, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a statewide race, that 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 would would resonate with the uh, the voters. But obviously, it's it's the direction they're taking. Like, who is more Trump um, than than the other candidate? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what they're doing down there. And I think it was appropriate to say that they're chasing. Uh, Representative Social Torres, but um, I don't think in a statewide race that that that's going to play well. New Mexico is a blue state. They're going to stay a blue state, and as Dan said, it doesn't vote well for the Republicans um, in this upcoming race. Dan, let me get you to swing the CD2 real quick. I mean, you can do it in 30 seconds. I want to get up north as well, but your sense of this Trump loyalty (laughs) thing down there, is it a a long-term winner, or is this just noise for the moment? It's, Gene, it's no different than what we just saw in the presidential race, right, for the Democrats. Everybody's got to run as far to the left as they can to win the primary, and then you try to tack back to the center once the, the general happens. You're seeing the same thing in the CD2 race. Everybody's trying to run as far to the right to win the primary, and then they're going to tack back to you know to try to be middle of the road uh, when they're doing that. Everybody right now is running to say that they're the most Trump-like, but I can tell you 30 seconds after they win the primary, uh, not necessarily CD2, but definitely on a statewide race, they're going to move directly away from President Trump, as anybody would, and try to be that moderate, middle-of-the-road New Mexican that I think people think can win elections in this state. Yeah. Hey, Didi, let's go up north real quick. Field of seven Democrats looking for that nom for the Ben Ray seat. What's your sense of that race in the overall, that primary? Then we'll get into the details of who. Well, I think in some ways it's kind of a jump ball at this point. Uh, the um, the lead 
according to the polls, I think the Teresa uh, Fernandez Leger or Leger Fernandez is mm -hmm. in the lead and she's drawn the fire from other other candidates from it's, it's kind of becoming a, a mud mud bath up there in Isn't some it? ways it, yeah. in the same way that it is down south in that you know dark money but but the issue there is dark money coming in and the candidates themselves being blamed for the dark money that is actually spent independently mm -hmm. you know and and during the debate um Teresa was uh, called upon to stop to stop the dark money. I'm, I'm not sure she even could. Right. And then there's recently been a negative ad against Valerie Plame uh, that is extremely inflammatory. Um, and the and everyone's saying, "Oh no, stop the the sky is falling. Stop the uh, so you've got to stop these things." And it's you know the way that's going. Candidates are are less in control. Actually, right. of what's going on. That's a good way to put it. Exactly <clears throat> right. You know, Kathy McGill, that Valerie Plame ad, uh, Senator just referenced. I think the, the key line is, "Why is Valerie Plame bringing her hate to New Mexico?" And there's accusations yeah. of Nazi sympathizing, and mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty brutal as these it's things go. Out yeah. of line. It's really out of line, and you know, I think that uh, it's not going to play well um, among. The voting public, although we know that people talk a lot about negative campaigning and how the dark money mm -hmm. uh, influences voters, um, I, I I definitely don't think that Valerie Plame, although I love her commercial and I could listen to it, uh, the ones that, that she put out for her campaign, I could watch her commercial uh, every day. Um, I don't think that, that she's got legs in the race in terms of being the front runner. And I think that Teresa, um, you know, in my opinion, um, you know, has those votes in, in CD2. So I believe uh, that, that those kinds of commercials are, are truly out of line and that people are looking at it saying, you know, you went too far on this one. Gotcha. Kathy McGill, Dee Dee Feldman, Dan Foley, thank you all very much. Really appreciate your efforts this week. Please stay safe and healthy for sure. We're talking legislative races next week, so be sure to catch that conversation. I want to take this opportunity to remind everybody to join our Focus on New Mexico Facebook page on YouTube. It's a private group where we talk about a lot of the issues and it helps us to research and sort of crowdsource ideas and topics and takes for uh, the line as well as the show in general. If you haven't already signed up for that, just search for Focus on New Mexico on Facebook and ask to be added to today. We'll send you a few questions, none of them very personal, and you'll get in on that as well. And it's a lot of the stuff we get out of there, we end up using for Facebook Live sessions. We had a couple great ones this week that if you didn't catch, we encourage you to go back and look. You can also find these on the New Mexico and Focus Facebook page as well as YouTube. So however you can get it, go ahead and get it. I encourage you. First, producer Kathy Wimmer, she talks to Serge Martinez, a name you probably remember. He's a, a regular line contributor, and he's also uh, does a lot of research on eviction law and eviction processes here in New Mexico, which have been in the spotlight during COVID-19 as well. You know, it was really interesting to me to find out I had heard about a moratorium on evictions during the COVID-19 outbreak, which I think everyone would agree is a good thing to do to help sure make sure folks have a roof over their head during this time, 
What I didn't realize is that they, folks can still get eviction notices, but they can't be kicked out during this time. So in effect, whenever that moratorium is lifted, there will be who knows how many families that are facing imminent eviction coming out on the back end of this. In addition, Kathy and Serge talked about how New Mexico is really quick in its eviction process. You go to court, and it can be three days later before you have to be out of the house if you have an eviction notice. So a lot of great information there. It's just the beginning of a conversation we're going to have on eviction law in New Mexico. So look for more on that as well, but encourage you to watch that. And then Gene Grant had a great Facebook Live on Friday as well with staff writer from the Albuquerque Journal, Jolene Gutierrez-Kruger, a popular person here in the Albuquerque, Santa Fe area. Uh, she does a lot of really important writing for the journal that people are very familiar with. And Jean wanted to check in with her on sort of how the reopening, the limited reopening of New Mexico is going from her perspective as so many people reach out to share their stories with Jolene. They talk about everything from the face masks that we mentioned earlier to restaurants and the crippling effects this has had on them and what might be the future for them going forward. They talk about uh, fears around domestic violence cases and, and mental health uh, issues that get that pop up during a time of, of upheaval in our regular routines like we're all facing right now. So those are a lot of really great information, and we encourage you to go watch those, and we encourage you to let us know what you'd like us to do in future Facebook Live sessions as well. So reach out to us. And do that on the website. You can email us at NewMexicoInFocus at NMPBS.org. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for NewMexicoInFocus.org. And before we go tonight, we have another special non-COVID-related topic that we want to share with you. It was an interview we actually recorded before the COVID-19 outbreak with correspondent Russell Contreras. It's all about the legacy of an educator uh, here in New Mexico, George I. Sanchez, he wrote a really landmark book on education and equity, and his granddaughter uh, recently moved back to Albuquerque and sat down to talk about not only his legacy and what it means for the state, but also how it translates to today's society where we have the Yazi Martinez uh, lawsuit that is driving major reform in education in New Mexico Russell asked her what she thinks her grandfather would think about those efforts and where we are, where we've come from his efforts back in the early 19th, 20th century. And so it's a, a fascinating conversation about a name you might not know or be familiar with before now. So here's Russell with that interview. We thank you for listening this week and encourage you to share the word about the podcast and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Soundbreaker, anywhere you get your podcast. Everybody have a fabulous three-day weekend, but most importantly, stay safe, stay healthy. I realized then that the national impact that he had of all the um, working with children in poverty and working with Hispanic children and families and Native American families. So this year marks the 80th anniversary of his book, Forgotten People, published by the University of New Mexico Press. came out in 1940 looking at the status of education among uh, Mexican-American and Native Americans. It was 
an instrumental and pioneering work because it was the first by a Mexican-American by yes. people of color. Yes. And it sold out. Eighty years later, we're still referring to the book. Why is this book so important today? I reread it recently. Um, he studied near Taos, Pinesco. He studied about what the students were coming to school with. And um, they were, they, he realized that they were not prepared to come to school. So he started pre-K. And um, he also realized that their backgrounds, their home backgrounds were very important. Um, they studied their home backgrounds, such as um, the study of Cunanderos and Cunanderas, um, and the homemade, the homeopathic. And here they were coming to English schools, and they were not allowed to speak Spanish. They were being punished. So, in when talking about curanderas, he was talking about healers, traditional exactly, healers. Exactly, the natural healers. And um, he was upset because people were ta being taken out of their culture and not allowed to have their culture into um, schools. And why was he so interested in the plight of Mexican American, Native American students, especially those struggling with poverty? What struck him at his core? He grew up in poverty. He grew up in poverty here in Albuquerque. Um, and I believe he just felt the drive to help others. And he always, he always taught that to us, to help others. No matter what it is, we are to help others. And of course, his work, this book and his later work, uh, were later used in landmark desegregation cases, like in California. Yes. I think of the Mendez case. And then later, his research helped the Brown versus Board of Ed, and he corresponded with Thurgood Marshall. Do people realize how important Dr. Sanchez's work? They do not, because he was a very humble man, and he taught us, as his family, to be very humble about it. It wasn't until we spoke um, years ago that I realized we're not going to get the word out about him in, unless we speak about what he did. And of course, right after that, he uh, left New Mexico because of yes. political, political. Mm -hmm. fights. And then he ended up at the, in Texas, at the University of Texas, where he became a LULAC president yes. and, and then active. What was his life like at the University of Texas? He, he excelled at Texas. He ended up getting his master's degree there and doctorate at Berkeley in California. And um, he realized he was, I think he realized he was called there. He mentored while he was there. He mentored many, many, many people who are still living, but they're in their 70s and 80s. Um, and they are, have started carrying on his fight. And what was his message to those he mentored? Continue no matter what the obstacles are. Continue working for students. And that's what, as a teacher, that's what I always felt like, um, no matter the situations. 
Later on, is, is, um, not only was he an educator, he was also a, a, a civil rights leader and political yes. activist. Yes, He got involved in the 1960 Viva Kennedy Clubs to elect <laughs> President John F. Kennedy there. What attracted him to President Kennedy? He felt that um, John F. Kennedy was the new, um, he was easy to speak to because when I've read books that my grandfather wrote, he felt that John F. Kennedy was easy to speak to and that John F. Kennedy would actually fight for equal rights of students, that they were individuals, so. And, and when he, uh, he was elected, uh, was Tata excited that uh, you had Yes, yes, yes. Did he feel that there was gonna be changes for Mexican-Americans after Kennedy's office? Um, yes, he felt changes were going to come, but he also knew that they were gonna be slow. Changers are slow, so. And uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, was so instrumental for his research here. Um, and he, when he ended up to the University of Texas, he was largely forgotten in New Mexico until recently. Why is that? I don't know. And he, I call him the forgotten educator. You and I both call him the forgotten educator. He. Um, Like I said, he was a very humble person. He taught us to be humble. Since we, my family lives in Texas, I live here now, but we were taught not to brag. So Was he always like that? He was always like that, what I remember from him. Now, you were his granddaughter, and later on you became an educator, too. Yes. How influential was he to your work? Well, I will tell you, I would much rather work in the lower income schools, and I believed it was the drive that he put in me, um, that he, the influence that he had on me. Um, kids, they can't help where they come from. But if you make them feel like to be proud of their heritage, and he was proud of his heritage. You, um, as you know, the state of New Mexico was locked in a lawsuit, the Martinez Yazi mm -hmm. lawsuit over equity and, and uh, equal access under the law. Uh, many in, the, in this case, who, who talk about this case, um, may not realize it, but they're actually making the same case that he did 80 years ago. Yes. If Dr. Sanchez returned today, would he be satisfied or disappointed with what he sees? He would shake his head. He would be very disappointed. Um, in the book, The Forgotten People, which I have a, a copy of, um, he said that liter literacy was 3.8 in the state. Um, I read a study and it's 16.8 right now. He would be disappointed. He would be feeling like we didn't go much further than where he was. And that's a percentage of adult literacy. And adult literacy. What do you what do you say about the conditions in the school? Because he would take photos. Yes. And see the poverty. Would would yes. he if he were to go now and say Espanola, where they're taking online classes in the cafeteria, would he be upset or? First of all, he'd be amazed at all the technology. <laughs> and um, second, he might think that this might be a key for developing more yeah, outreach to Hispanics. And what do you think his response to the Yazi Martinez lawsuit would be? 
He would love it. He would love it. Um, following it, he might be disappointed on where the funds, how they're being distributed. But what, what do you want people to know about your Tata today? That he fought for Hispanics, um, Native Americans, African Americans. He fought for every student. And he was not a proud man, but he mentored so many people because he felt that the mentorship was important to carry on the fight. Now you um, now live, have come back to Albuquerque. You live yes. with your husband, Reverend Kennedy, who's pastor at Central Methodist here. Yes. You guys are involved right in the heart of the <laughs> yes. homelessness and poverty fight. Do you feel that that legacy is because of Dr. Sanchez? I feel that we've been led back to Albuquerque because um, this is where Tata uh, was born, where my mother was born. Um, and I was not born here, but I do feel like I was the only one of my siblings. I do feel like we've done a complete, I've done a complete circle of the family. Mm -hmm. Now, so. of course, Dr. Sanchez was, uh, was a, involved in bilingual education. He would become a critic, uh, See, uh, look yes. into it, um, the way Spanish was taught in schools. You were not taught Spanish. No. Yeah. No. In that generation, why was that? He did not want his grandchildren to go through the prejudice that he experienced and that um, is both in elementary all the way up and even into the, you know, college, going to college. He was pre um, discriminated against. He didn't want us to go through that. Um, but uh, he would speak Spanish to my mother and to my step-grandmother. And um, it's a secret language like we spell. And then you, of course, a few years ago, you and I talked about this, yes. had a brain aneurysm. Yes, I'm a brain aneurysm survivor. What happened after that? When, according to my husband, when I woke up from the coma after the surgery, I, w I spoke only Spanish for 36 hours, fluent Spanish. So uh, I, I could feel him, and I was at UNMH, um, I could feel my grandfather after I was told all these stories because I, I have no memory of it. Um, I spoke Spanish for 36 hours and I could tell that he would be very proud that I picked up Spanish. And it was back there in my hippocampus and that's where the brain aneurysm was located. Do you feel that it was your, your grandfather coming back and talking to you? Yes, I do, because the other siblings do not speak Spanish. And um, as we know now, children, the younger they learn, the more they pick up. And they may not use it until they're adults. And a few years ago, the Albuquerque Public Schools finally named a yes. school after Tata, the George I. Sanchez School, Albuquerque yes. uh, School Heritage. What was your reaction when they finally opened it? It was joy, joy, because he had finally come home. He had finally come home to Albuquerque. Um, as you know, he was politically ousted 
out of, out, out of New Mexico. And I felt like this was a homecoming for him. Well, thank you, Cynthia. Can you appreciate it? Thank you.